You know, I seem to have gotten a reputation as being kind of a crusty old guy or something, and I'm not. Down deep, I'm really a pussycat. I really am. I was sitting there thinking tonight, if I had one day left to live, and I was in Los Angeles, I would fly here, and I would ask Steve to make some of his announcements. (laughs) (laughs) Would make that last day seem like forever. I want to thank Steve, though, because Steve and uh, Lance came over to the airport and picked me up, and I, I want, didn't want to play favorites, so I let them each carry one of my bags. <laughs> and uh, the wheelman was Greg, who couldn't seem to find us for a long time. But we had a wonderful time, and it's been a very good weekend. I especially want to thank Lance. They assigned him, although he was not my formal host, to get my coffee and when I wanted it and find me a seat and so on. He's done a wonderful job. Thank you, Lance. And uh, let's see, anything else? Yes, I, uh, this, I had breakfast this morning with a young man who I sponsor. He asked me to put his name on the tape. I said, listen, bro, I can't put your name on the tape. So, sorry. But it's been a wonderful convention. I'm sure you I've been sitting down there for every speaker except one. I missed the Al Anon speaker today because I didn't sleep very well last night. You never sleep very well when you're taking a three hour trip east. And I uh, sat through the meeting this morning, then I went back to my room, I was going to lie down for just a minute, and I slept for a couple hours. But I'll listen to the Al Anon tape this coming week on the freeway, and if I find any errors, I'll call them out. Because <laughs> he and I are both Wisconsin managers. Uh, But Joe, Friday night, gave an excellent talk. I remember recommending Joe to talk on the West Coast 15 years ago. Uh, I always thought he was a fine AA. And Sandy gave an excellent talk. He's been an old friend of mine since he was kind of new in sobriety in Washington, D.C. He had two friends. They all got sober at the same time. We were all out coming. They all had a lot of – Sandy never mentioned this, but he had a lot of power in Washington for a while. And uh, he was with – one ran around one of the chief lobbyists of Washington and uh, a man who fancied himself the emperor of Rome and we uh, we had a lot of fun together <laughs> and this morning I certainly enjoyed Lorna I uh, she had a, she had a good talk this afternoon too at the old timers meeting except she's a little mistaken <laughs> Lois never rode a motorcycle ever and if you ever saw a picture of her on the motorcycle, it was set up. Bill Wilson rode the motorcycle, and sometimes he would take her with him. And don't you forget it. <laughs> Coming in here with that feminist crap. <laughs> I singularly enjoyed this afternoon's old-timers meeting, although I was on it. Because I'll tell you something. We, we acknowledge and we formally give them credit. But now I'm in my, I've been over sober over 50 years, and I've been through a lot. And there's a lot of things that you can overcome. And you just don't know how much overcome to overcome Dan had in the last 59 years. And he's here. And we stand up and congratulate somebody with, for one day when they look healthier than I do. <laughs> Let's stand up and give a little thanks to Dan.
kept these doors open while we were sitting in bars telling each other how cute we were. <laughs> but anyway, what is it? <laughs> I, uh, it's been a very good trip here. Sometimes it's a bad trip. A few years ago, I was speaking in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, which is a long way beyond any lengths. And on the way back, <laughs> we flew on uh, Air, Air Iceland, which you spot their planes, you can always recognize they got hair under the wings. And, uh, <laughs> but they dumped me in Minneapolis. I had about a four-and-a-half-hour wait in Minneapolis. It was Sunday night. I was so tired. God, it's such a long trip. And uh, sitting in the red carpet room, which is the United Airlines frequent flyer room, and I sat there for a couple hours, and nobody around hardly, and I had to go to the bathroom, so in the bathroom, two cute little stalls side by side. So I sat in one and thought about things, and all of a sudden from the other stall, the voice said, Hi there. <laughs> huh. I just ignored it. What are you doing tonight? <laughs> oh, no, Jesus. So I said, I'm going back to Los Angeles to see my wife and my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. Thank you very much for asking. I thought called. Pretty soon the voice, long pause, the voice said, we could really have some fun tonight if you wanted to. And I was tired. I didn't act like a good AA. I said, what the hell's wrong with you? Get off it. Just forget it. Leave it alone. Leave me alone. There was a long pause, and the voice said, I'll have to call you back. This jerk in the next stall will shut up. <laughs> That's a bad trip. I'm glad to be here tonight, safe and sane and sober. And, uh, unlike many of the speakers here, we all have different stories, entirely different variegated backgrounds. I was thinking last night when Joe was talking about the rather halcyon days he had as a child. I grew up in a very stabilized, structured home in northern Wisconsin, uh, Norwegian Lutheran stock, uh, very strict, very formal, did not restrict and formal. We were all poor. Nobody knew that because of the middle of the Depression. And I did quite well. I uh, was catechized and confirmed. And I didn't read very well, so I shoved ahead in school. And I lived a perfect life. So I remember somebody saying one day that maybe he'd be governor. Uh, when I was about 11 or 12, my parents got divorced. No big deal. Everybody gets divorced. But if you can imagine this, at that age, in that place, I had never heard of a divorce. There had been a divorce in our church or in our family. And this offended me. And my, somebody explained it to me. I understood it. But I really resented it. I resented both of my parents for doing that to me. Because things changed. And I immediately began doing the one thing I shouldn't have done. I look back now and I can see what a bad mistake I began playing my mother against my father to avoid any structure in my life. When my mother gave me hell, I'd run to my father. my father gave me hell, I'd run to my mother. They both gave me hell, I'd run to my grandma. And I fooled him again and again and again and again and again. By the time I was 15, I was flunking out of high school. I had a nasty attitude. I had a sarcastic little punk. I had, uh, had very few friends. A couple of three friends I had were just bad kids in school. In fact, a couple of them wound up in the penitentiary. And I was going that way. And I, uh, what saved my life, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Because that was big enough to take my attention off everything. I couldn't wait till Saturday to go down to put a dime and go to the news movie and see it on their newsreels and all these things. There was no television or anything. 
And then a kid came home from high school, a kid in our senior class, our, the senior class high school, came back, and he had enlisted in the Marine Corps the day after Pearl Harbor. And he was a tall, bronze kid, had his dress blues on, just looked wonderful. And all the girls went, ooh, oh. I thought, that's what I need. I was about this tall with a face full of pimples and wore glasses, but I thought the uniform would carry it. <laughs> and I, uh, I told my wife I wanted to go to, my mother, I wanted to go to Superior, where the, our Alan uh, speaker's room, to see my aunt. And she packed my little bag and gave me bus fare. I got a guy to give me a ride to Minneapolis, 90 miles away. And I said to somebody, how did I get to San Francisco? That's where I thought they were going to be. He said, well, you could hitchhike. I never hitchhiked. I was dumb, a dumb. And I said, how do you hitchhike? He said, you just stick your tongue out or your thumb out and smile. So I, I stood outside of the road. And I, uh, <laughs> I, just, I thought, this isn't working. Car stopped. The guy said, where are you going, kid? I said, San Francisco? He said, so am I. Hop in. He's in the ship. He's going back to his ship. He's the Navy guy. And I don't know why he picked me up. But what a wonderful thing. I wish he, he must have been a saint. He drove me all the way across the country. We never, there were no motels then, but you'd stop at trailer courts. You'd get me a bed. We'd buy my meals and listen to me prattle. Come on, we in Jap. We to kill Japs. We near San Francisco. He said, kid, you know, you're too small. You obviously aren't grown up. How old are you? I said, 15. He said, I'll tell you what you do. Why don't you join the Merchant Marine? They'll take you if you're 16, I think. So I'll drop you at the Coast Guard office on Mount, uh, Market Street. You go in and tell me you want to be in the Merchant Marine. Tell me you're 16. I said, okay. No dumb. I want to be in the Merchant Marine. Throw out this application, kid. I filled it out. I put down 16. He said, well, <laughs> you're only 16, kid. You have to have your parents' permission. So I took it around the block at my parents' permission. <laughs> brought it back and they issued me Siemens papers right there no training no nothing took another guy night on the uh, National Maritime Union we signed for union dues whatever the hell they were took us to the Embarcadero put us on a big ship that afternoon we were on a load of torpedo warheads going to the South Pacific and a reading was fun for about an hour and then I take care of that's where the World's Fair was last year mm. that's Alcatraz mm. that's the Golden Gate Bridge then nothing after that ever. <laughs> but is it? I was excited. I was dumb. I was dumb. I was just so excited. I'm not afraid ever once. And they put me in a room with three of the worst type of people that any small, dumb Norwegian Lutheran kid can be with. These people are called men. Said, what the hell are you supposed to be? <laughs> I could see there was a little tension, so I told him a story that I was used to go over good in study hall. Didn't go over good there. Said, Get your bunk and shut up. I got my bunk up there. The ship was moving around like this, hot in there. And these guys started talking. And this was the worst of all. I mean, I had been a bad kid in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I'd already broken three uh, commandments severely. I didn't remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy several times. I dishonored my mother and my father by being mean to them. I uh, had said, take the name of the Lord in vain a few times when I was with these bad kids. And uh, But these guys, 
They start talking. And I said, I'm in here with a bunch of sinners. I mean, big time sinners. I mean, these are bad dudes, you know. They'd been there about three days in San Francisco with the ship. They'd been doing dirty things incessantly for three days with women. I just shocked. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I'd had sex in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but I'd been apprehensive and I'd been afraid and I'd been alone. And these guys, these guys were doing it with people. Oh. And I suddenly realized, of course, they've all got black hair. Those are the Catholics I heard about. But I got eventually got to be the ship fool and I got along all right. But these guys were tough, you know. And they, they treated me like a, a, an idiot. That saved me. Maybe I was a holy idiot. Hey, kid, down the entrance, tell them we left handed wrench. Hey, kid, go tell the captain we need some elbow grease. Just on and on and on. And then on a ship, a watch on a ship consists of four hours, eight hours off, then four hours, then eight hours off. So you're always up like four to eight or eight to twelve. And these guys would come in at the end of our shift. They'd drink whiskey. They had whiskey in their sea bags. We weren't supposed to have it on a ship, but who's going to stop them? They'd have been pirates any other generation. Ha, 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 ha. And uh, I'd lie in my bed and quiver. And one day one of these guys turned to me and said, How about you, Junior? You think you're man enough for a little snort? He shoved that bottle in my face. And I, that's, I drew the line there. I might be a bad Lutheran, but I'm a Lutheran. And I'm just going to lay it out. You get that bottle out of my face. I guess you don't know, happen to know that I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. And we don't drink whiskey. And we don't run around with people to do. And I promised my mother and grandmother I would never drink whiskey. And don't ever put that whiskey in my face again. I'm just going to tell them that. I said, why do you think you're man enough? And I heard a voice say, God damn right. <laughs> So I got my first drink of whiskey out of the first bottle I was ever close to to burn my mouth and my throat and my stomach and my throat and my mouth and his shirt finally. <laughs> Get the bottle away from that son of a bitch. <laughs> to this day, I don't know any emotion worse than public humiliation. Where somebody just pulled your covers and you, they, everybody can see you're nothing. I want to hit this guy. They're laughing. I, I thought later, there's one thing I might have done. I'm glad I didn't think of it. They'd have thrown me overboard, but it would have been cute. I could have said, lean over you. Yeah. Take that. Just one little eye. But all the way across the Central Pacific, when nobody was around, at least once a day, I'd drink, take a whiskey, some whiskey, try to drink it. Because I was obsessed with the idea. The reason they were treating me like a child is because I threw up that whiskey. That was the reason at all, but that's what I thought. We finally come into Pearl Harbor. There's still smoke coming up. And it's still exciting. And uh, I was the night before my 16th birthday, and I was down there taking, taking a drink of that crap, and it burned my mouth and my throat and my stomach, and stayed there. And I held a drink down, and I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I found myself feeling significantly better. And I learned something. I learned that if, I didn't learn much, but I learned if you if you don't vomit and you can breathe, it makes you feel better. I didn't become a terrible alcoholic at all. They took me in Honolulu the next day and bought me three bottles of beer, and I got me tiddly, and I thought it was cute, and they thought it was cute. And we went to the Aleutian Islands. Some of you young people don't know this, 
But in World War II, Japan successfully invaded the United States. That's not a joke up in the Aleutian Islands. We had to go up and get them out of there. And it was kind of fun. did a lot of things. And when I was 17, I went in the Navy, finally. And uh, at the end of the war, I was in the Naval Hospital outside of San Francisco being sewed together. And they passed around some tests. I've always been good on tests because I read a lot. And I remember the guy coming in and he says, Clancy, this must be a mistake, but this says you're in the top five percentile of the entire United States Navy in intelligence. Yeah. But what it turned out to do, it enabled me, they gave me a high school diploma as a result of that. Because I'm still a beginning junior in high school. Who was that, Joe also a beginning junior in high school? Somebody was, anyway. I wanted to have a little class dinner with him. But I went back to Wisconsin after the war and went to the University of Wisconsin. And I was active and I won some trophies for the university. And kind of, most of you are much too young to remember this. But in 1946, millions of veterans got out of the service, all went to college at once, all over the country, filled every college campus. And uh, you'd sit there in a freshman English class and some girl, were you in the war? Yeah, you put out. <laughs> a lot of men. I found one that did, and we've been married 60 years. <laughs> but... Uh, People say, <laughs> I've found a great answer when people say, how can you, how can wild hair like you stay sober 60 years? I say, well, it's easy. Neither one of us wanted to take custody of those kids. <laughs> but anyway, I went out in the world. I became a, that's just a joke. <laughs> I went out in the world. I became a sports writer, newspaper sports writer, which to this day is my favorite occupation. And I covered professional sports and just loved it. But then my wife began manifesting the terrible behavior patterns of Catholics that I knew nothing of and I never knew anybody who knew about it. But if there's any little Protestant boys here and you're falling for a good Catholic girl, I've got some news for you. You are about to have a big family, whether you want one or not. I became a national distributor of small Catholics. Just boom. <laughs> So I had to get better jobs. I got a job, finally, I had to make more money. I got a job at Fairbanks Morse in the advertising department. I had a flair for writing. And I worked there, and I did quite well. And we had a little baby, and uh, began another long pattern. They called me in one day and said, Clancy, you write splendidly. But, you know, we, want, we need to have you here on Mondays as well. And when you come in, you smell like a distillery, because all these years I drank. Once I got out of the service and back in college, I learned to drink, and I loved it. Alcohol enables me to do things that nothing else can. Just, I just love it. Sometimes drink a little too much. And uh, they called me and said, you know, you're going to have to do something about that. Fortunately, I'd heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. Somebody told me about it. They said, you're actually so bizarrely you ought to go to A. So I went to A. I told this guy, I said, Mr. Collins, I got drinking heavily overseas. You know, it was pretty bad over there. And uh, they got this new thing downtown called Alcoholics Anonymous. How about giving me a paid two weeks leave of absence? And I'll get out there and get sober and we'll be all right. He said, that's a good idea. Because nobody knew much about A. It was kind of a mystic thing. So I went down there and eight fat guys sitting around the table what the hell are you doing here? Huh. Now, now why he said that? Because I was 22 and I looked younger. 
But uh, there wasn't anybody in that state under 40 at that time. So it was like some little kid 10 years old coming in tonight and saying, I think I'm an alcoholic. Oh, do you? I think you have a broken nose. (coughs) Uh, But I sat there. I went to a few meetings. They talked about drinking all the time, how they talked about how much they drank. It seemed to me it set up a pattern for years after that. See, every time I went to AA, although I couldn't, it isn't possible I could have heard this, but I swore I'd hear this or a version of it all the time. I stayed drunk around the clock, 25 years. One day I walked through that door. They told me to put the plug in the jug, and I did. And I've just never been so goddamn happy. (laughs) Hasta la vista, baby. Well, I could see I was not going to be able to stop drinking in those two weeks, so I, I got a different job in a different state. And that's, I did that for 10 years. I drank. I went to AA from time to time. I got a new jobs. I was, have, I was having some emotional explosion or getting drunk or some problem. And it was just uh, wild, up and down and up and down. Finally went down in Dallas, which... Uh, at, firm called Tracy Locke, largest advertising agency in the South. And I had uh, been writing the L.C. Delmarats. If you're old, you remember those old cows. And they called me and day the same story. You know, Clancy, you cost us the Frito account by something you did last week. We didn't do. Give me the keys to your car. Here's your severance check. Clean out your desk. Go home. We called your wife yesterday, said you were, you'd be home today because you were letting it go. I thought, God, that's terrible. And I went home, and I kind of drank on the way home. I didn't get there for a couple days. But I got there, my clothes were all on the front porch. And my wife was gone. She'd sold the furniture and moved, taken all the kids and moved. And I thought, isn't that just like it? You make one little mistake and they turn on you. But I knew I, uh, I said, I got to get out of Texas. Because although... Through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, I was on probation from the state nuthouse in Big Spring. And she had put me in there, and now she's, I'm sure she turned me back in. So I knew I had to get out of there. And a guy had asked me a couple weeks before that, he said, do you know anybody who wants to drive my car to Los Angeles? I said, no. But that day I knew somebody who did. I said, I'll do it. He said, how about your job? I said, I'll have a bunch of phonies. I quit. So I got into this car, filled with my stuff. He gave me a credit card and some money. Drove as far as El Paso the first day, parked my car, went to Juarez. I used to work in El Paso on the university there, and I uh, had a great time. Just one of my highlights of my life, standing on the bar, dead drunk in the Chinese palace, singing, Yo soy el maestro de los locos en Chihuahua. <laughs> cabron, cabron. <laughs> And the next day I got up rather hungover and drove some more. I got as far as Phoenix. And I knew I had to park the car there. I didn't have any friends there. So I parked it well, hid it well, and I haven't found it since. And uh, <laughs> that night I was on looking for my car. I couldn't find it. Some back in my street. I said, help me find my car, will you, pal? He said, I've got time for that. Leave me alone. I said, come on, be a good citizen. He said, leave me alone. I grabbed him by the lapel. He took my hands down. Took out his badge, took me to jail, 
threw me upstairs. I'm going to cool you off, boy. You don't really cool off in a jail that's 130 degrees, but you... I went to sleep finally. In the middle of the night, I woke up. I was so sick. Oh, God, I was sick. And I... I threw up. It wasn't the toilet. It was somebody's bed, is what it was. But he wasn't in it. It wasn't so bad, you know. Then after I did that, I don't know if you've ever done this after you threw up, but you lie down on the floor and put your cheek on the cool tile. Oh, God, that feels good. And I went to sleep when this guy came back from wherever he was. Hey! Found his bed full of vomit. This drunk, you drunken hammer! I'm sure he didn't mean to do it, but he kicked my front teeth out. And I'd spent several thousand dollars a few years before that in psychoanalysis. But that was the first morning I really appreciated it. I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. <laughs> I remember thinking, this son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> but I didn't want to say anything to make trouble. And I came out of that jail in the morning, sick, mud, dirt, vomit, blood all over me. Didn't know a soul. Didn't know anybody that would accept a collect phone call from me by this time because I'd run down pretty bad. But I'd learned one thing. And if you're going to be a long-term slipper, let me give you a hand. If you're going to be a long-term slipper, remember this. No matter, when you get to a place where nobody will accept you, there's always one place you're welcome. That's an AA club. It's the only place in the world where the worse you look, the better they like it. This one's mine, Jim. <laughs> so I found where the A Club was. I stumbled over there and hustled some old lady for $20, ostensibly for a 24-hour-a-day room, and took that and ran downtown and bought a bus ticket to Los Angeles. There was a guy, a big star in Los Angeles. I'd given him his start years before when I was doing well. And I called him up and said, Ted, I had a terrible car accident. I've lost everything. My car. Could you help me till I get a check? He's all clancy. He showed me how to get out to Hollywood Boulevard on the bus. I got out there and went to where his office. He said, Everybody, oh. He said, oh, look at Oh, you poor guy. And he peeled off a couple hundred dollars, which in those days was a lot of money. I said, Jesus, too. I said, really appreciate it. I went downstairs and rented a room and cleaned up a little bit. And got, drank a little bit for a couple of days and ran out of money and called him back. I said, Ted... I, uh, my check hasn't come. Could you help me one more time? He says, Clancy, I called Dallas. You have daddy car. I said, you're a bum. Nobody wants anything to do with you anymore. You're a bum. You've, you've screwed everybody over. You're not going to screw me over again. I said, oh, Jesus, Ted, for old time's sake, I'm so sick, please. He says, okay, you come to the station, TV station tonight, but come in the alley back at Hollywood Boulevard. And you, you should be out there at 9 o'clock. I may come on the on the uh, fire escape, and I may not. So I was out there at 8.30. It was raining, raining. And uh, he came out at 9 o'clock. He said, Clancy, you make me want to vomit. He threw a $5 bill and drifted out of the mud until I crawled out and got that. But well, I really fooled him. And the morning after that, I woke up. In an all-night theater. I know some of you must have been in an all-night theater. They don't really run all night. They're on Skid Row. They don't run all night. They run until about 5 in the morning. Then they have to get all the bums out. Because that's all the only people in there. People sleeping for 35 cents a night. So they can hose it down. Okay, you bums. Everybody in the street. Out in the rain. And I didn't want to go. God. You guys, you want to sell a pint of blood? I said, Jesus, do I ever. 
And he, uh, he went up 4th Street to Blood Bank and stood in line in the rain, finally let us in and took a drop of blood of yours. You don't have enough iron in your blood to sell a pint of blood, Spud. I said, Jesus, I'm so sick. Help me, please. He's down here about four blocks. There's a mission called the Midnight Mission. They should be serving breakfast right about now. Why don't you go down there? I said, okay. Down in the rain, there's a Midnight Mission. I said, could I have some breakfast, please? He said, you just missed it. Sorry. We're done serving. Come back at noon. We'll give you some lunch. I can't wait at noon. Please help me. Jesus, I'm sick. He said, I can't help you. we got no food to give you. Come back at noon. And I grabbed him by the lapel. I had bad luck doing that. <laughs> and he, two guys came over and unpeeled me and threw me out the door and said, Don't come back here, you son of a bitch. And I tried to explain to him, I'm not a son of a bitch. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I wrote, the LC numbers were running that very week in Life, New Yorker, Serving Post. I've had my picture in the New York Times for one of my achievements. But it's hard to explain these things in midair. <laughs> and I started outside of the damn old mission, and I didn't know what to do. Raining, sick, cold. If some old guy would come up that morning and said, You know, Slim, you're dying. You're down to 120-some pounds. You've lost your wife and children. Never see them again. You've lost your career. Once upon a time, they called you a boy genius. You can't even get a job washing dishes. Look at you. You're a mess. Your mouth is bleeding down. All your clothes are in that car in Phoenix. All your ID, all your money. Your little mother up in Wisconsin is no longer allowed to accept phone calls from you because your stepfather's so tired of watching you play on her emotions. So she'll go down to her tiny little bank account and take out a few more dollars, send it to her little boy, try to help him. He'd rather have her think you're dead than the way you are. And he said, you've been going to AA now off and on every time the heat's been on for 10 years. And you sit in these meetings and try to conceal your smirk. These dumbbells run through their little procedures and their little slogans and their little talks and their little drinks. And, blah, blah, blah. and uh, now you're dying. He said, maybe you should go back to AA one more time, he might have said, and admit you're an alcoholic. And if I were in mood to be honest, which I may or may not have been, I might have had to tell him, pal, you don't understand. I'm not an alcoholic. At this stage of my life, I wish the hell I was. I'd give anything to be that simple, to be an alcoholic, to be one of these simpletons who could sit in a meeting and quit drinking and say it feels better. But there's something wrong inside of me. I spent thousands of dollars trying to do something about it. You know, they say alcoholics can't, can't uh, stop drinking. I can stop. I've stopped drinking so many times, and I can stop. But my problem has never been I can't stop. My problem is that after I stop, in a day or two, someone seems to sneak into my bedroom in the middle of the night and put an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day they start to tighten it. And it doesn't come out as, I need a drink. It just comes out as a little growing restlessness, a little irritability, a little tired of these goofs around here, a little watching whatever technicolor there is in my life slowly go back to the gray, gray, gray job, gray people, gray family, gray house, gray everything. And it gets pretty bad. And that's why I spent thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis trying to break that pattern. I tried everything I knew how. But the, the only, you know how you break that pattern? I always remembered it. Happy days. Mm. Oh, God. Then you say, but I'll watch it this time. And I, uh, 
I didn't know how to explain to people. They tried to tell me my problem was alcohol. It isn't. It isn't. Alcohol is the best friend I ever had. Friends come and go. Lovers come and go. Jobs come and go. Cities come and go. But when a few drinks is just filling up every hole in your body, oh, God, that's great. My only problem is I've got to watch it. I thought about the analogy. Some of you this week I talked about using diabetes as an analogy. That's about why I think if I'm a diabetic, if I take too much insulin, I'll go into shock. So I've got to find a way not to do that, but I can't stop taking insulin. That's the way I feel about alcohol. I've got to find a way not to take so much of it, but I've got to have it, because if I don't, I turn into an introverted wimp full of depression and tendencies, just terrible. And when I drink, I become something. Sometimes it overshoot, but by God, for a while, it's something. And I, uh, why would I think I was an alcoholic? Alcohol is not my problem. Alcohol is the best friend I got. It's these damn fools I stay sober with and the damn places I get into. And, but nobody came up for that morning. I just, when I went to the whip, I said to some mooch, I said, uh, where's the AA club here, pal? He said, oh, there's nothing downtown. He said, you have to go out the west side, out to Wilshire and Fairfax. I said, where the hell is that? So when you go up this hill to Hill Street, cut over to Wilshire, walk west till you come to it. And that's the whole way I went. And he didn't tell me it was seven and a half miles away. And I walked in the rain. After all, I just got to be like the Bataan death march almost, just on on. And my mouth started bleeding. Got to this club finally. Went in the door and there's another fool standing there. Welcome home, son! <laughs> oh, Jesus. And I, I tried to stay out of sight then for that day, so none of these idiots would come over and read to me out of their book. I read the book, and I thought it was very dull. Uh, and at night, they had a meeting there. Everybody had to go to the meeting in the club. Everybody to the meeting! Not to this meeting. At least they served cake. I had about four pounds of cake, so I could chew that. <laughs> then we sat down, and they had a meeting on gratitude, and I almost puked it all up again. Just... <laughs> Then everybody went home, still raining. I didn't know what to do. I just knew I, this manager was looking at me funny. I knew he was going to make me leave without that rain. So I thought I'd, I'd go again to the whip. I had one thing that I always thought was a good. never seemed to work right, but it seemed to me I had a good newcomer look when I really worked at it. And I went to the manager. I said, I'm a newcomer, and I want sobriety on an all-time basis. And it's raining out, and I don't know where to go. Could you help me? He says, you're in luck, kid. Guy named Joe Quinn left a 49 Merc in the parking lot last summer. It's dry. It doesn't run. You can sleep in that. I said, you mean to tell me the AA answer for homelessness here is to sleep in an abandoned car? He says, yeah, good deal, huh? <laughs> well, that's a good deal. I love it. <laughs> and I slept in that damn old car, that cold and sick of my bleeding. Opened up early the next morning. It to be Sunday morning. I went in. Nine o'clock, they're setting up another meeting, got a cake, ate some more cake, and then they had the meeting is about spirituality and God. As soon as I heard the word God, I did as I always did in Amy, I got up and left. Because I'm it isn't that I disbelieve in God, I just I hate God. And I uh, spent the day there and that night the manager said, You know, kid, you're supposed to be a member to go in during the week here. And I'm gonna let you come in, but you can't ask anyone for money. And none of your sarcastic remarks are already people complaining about them. And you got to go to a meeting every night. Oh, Jesus. 
it'll stop raining pretty soon. I'll get out of here like a hot rock. And I went to the meeting and became my sobriety date. Absolutely astonishing. You know, tonight, young man read the 12 traditions, third tradition, said the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. I had no desire to stop drinking. None. Absolutely. I'll tell you why. Because the one time I really had a desire to stop drinking was in the mid-50s. I was going through a pattern then where I'd get to a certain stage of drinking and I'd counsel police officers. Jesus, that was a stupid thing. I wound up in jail several times, just overnight. I got so I could get up in the morning and go to work. And uh, one night, one morning I came out and my, my neighbor was there. She came down to give you a ride home. I said, ah, don't worry, I got that cop's badge. I'm going to get him. He's going to pay for this. Don't worry, this guy really screwed me around. He said, I don't know about that. He said, while you're out drunk, your little son died and we couldn't find you. Said, oh, God. I had a bunch of little girls and one little boy, and he was really the apple of my eye, I tell you. I had great plans for him. I almost went crazy. Regret. We took him up to Wisconsin, married, buried him at the foot of his grandmother, mother, my wife's mother's grave. Took a vow in his casket. I said, John Emerson, this will never happen again. I promise you. I'm so sorry. I love you. And we came home, and I stopped drinking. I didn't go to AA. That just makes me want to drink. I came home from work, have dinner with my wife and kids for the first time in a long time, have help with the schoolwork, go for a ride on the weekends, go to the movies sometimes. Every meal we'd say a little prayer for baby John's soul. It was just wonderful. Probably the best three or two or three weeks I'd ever had of my life. And then one night, unfortunately, someone snuck into my bedroom and put an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day, it wasn't so wonderful. And uh, the kids were a little noisier than usual, it seemed to me. And I didn't like that job quite so well. And I uh, kept going. And uh, a couple of days later, it was getting kind of bad. I was talking to my daughters. Mary, take your sisters and go to your room. For Christ's sake. I'm sorry. I don't mean it. We'll play tomorrow. Uh, just, daddy's doesn't feel well. And I hate everything. It's just hate that damn job is looking worse and worse. And I didn't know what to do. I couldn't drink because I'd taken a bow in my son's casket not to drink. It, got so, it just got so bad. I just got crazy after a while. One day my wife took the children to Mass. I just pulled the car in the garage and hooked up a hose and the exhaust pipe and turned the motor and went to sleep and died. I just, I didn't. And a neighbor happened to be sitting in his breakfast nook having a cup of coffee. And he saw me go in there and heard the motor running. I didn't come out, so he wandered over there and found me dead in the car. And they pulled me out, beat on my chest, breathed my mouth, rushed me to the hospital, oxygenated me, kept me under lock and key for a week and examined me and determined that I was seriously mentally ill and committed me for an indefinite period to the state insane asylum. Now, that's how I get when I stop drinking, folks. That's not a goal of mine. And I went there, and I was there about... I think about that sometimes. I was there about two weeks. I was feeling better. I didn't know why I felt better. I didn't know why not, because I was protected against reality. You know, it was easy. And uh, some big redneck attention says, You better not ever try to escape from here, boy. I said, oh, really? <laughs> and about a week later, I found a way to get through a door and down across the corridor and another door and over the fence, and I was gone. But it's a funny thing, you, there, I don't know if you've ever been in West Texas, but as you get over that fence and you suddenly realize why it's an escape-proof hospital. 
because they can see you running for three days. <laughs> Your white bathrobe flashing through the cactus. <laughs> well, there goes that little Yankee sub bitch now. And they snatched me back and gave me three months of electric shock for that run. And I was in there a long time. I didn't get out of there till the next year. And then I had to pretend to be an alcoholic. But that's how I get to when I stop drinking. Why would I stop drinking now? I would no so I could go up in my car and sleep and freeze all night again, let my mouth bleed. But I'll tell you what happened. In those meetings I was going to, I saw a guy that I'd seen in the movies. I see him in a couple of movies. I thought, a movie star. What do you know about a movie star? You know they're rich. I thought, I'll bet he'd like to have a new friend. I kind of warmed up to him, but he didn't warm up to me. But by Friday, it was getting bad. I was sleeping in that car, living on cake. Just, I, I said, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to die here. So I went to this actor. I said, Bob, I really love your program because you've told me about it. Would you be my sponsor? <laughs> He's okay, kid. I want you to tell you. Oh, sure, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he became my sponsor. And uh, it turned out he wasn't a movie star at all. He'd been in three little. He'd been in a small role in three movies. And I'd seen two of them, so I thought he's in a lot of movies. In the last ten years, I've been in five times as many movies as he's ever been in. But I didn't know it then. They said he wasn't a very good actor, but he was a good actor because he acted well in meetings. And that took a lot of acting for him. He was a right-wing fascist AA pig of the worst sort. <laughs> Why am I taking this crap from this idiot? Because he was my only meal ticket out of there. Didn't take me long to identify the fact that I was much more intelligent than he was. And I had to spend my time concealing that. Because no one wants to have a baby or a sponsee that's smarter than you are. And he'd say stupid things. I said, Jesus, Bob, I never thought of that. <laughs> he just wanted to cut my throat for being so corny. And he was, the, he, I look back now, he was a good man. He tried to help me. And he really did. And he, uh, he was a man of strong opinions. But I told him going in, you know, Bob, I want you to know this. I know you're trying to help me. I'm not really an alcoholic the way you people in A have alcoholics. My problem is not really alcohol. I got some emotional problems, maybe some mental disorders, but I don't know what to do about them. He said, okay, we'll talk, talk about that later. But he'd sometimes come by and pick me up and take me where he was talking, or he'd buy me a meal. And he took me out to Brentwood one night, big meeting out in Brentwood. And the first speaker was uh, some kid who got up and said, I just came back today to tell all of you how much I appreciate you helped me. I came here nine or ten months ago. I've been drinking heavily. I came in here. You explained to me how it is to stay sober, and I've stayed sober. And I haven't been back here for eight months. I haven't been in AA, but I've been getting my family together. My job is going well. I just want to come in and say thank you to all of you. Another, another sickening success story. But I noticed old Bob pounced on him after the meeting. He said, you shouldn't be here. Don't come to our meetings. You're spoiling everything. Give that chair up. Jesus, he must be a little hot on the set out there today. On the way home, I said, Bob, why did you pounce on that little shit? He said, well, kid, because his problem is alcohol. I said, Bob, I hope this doesn't startle you. 
But that's what AA is about, to help people whose problem is alcohol. <laughs> says, no, it isn't. I said, what do you think it is, Bob? You know, I'll tell you, if you have an alcohol problem, here's how you overcome it. You stop drinking, you clean up your act, and when people say, do you want to drink, you say, no, thank you. I said, that's stupid, Bob. I've been trying that for 10 years. It doesn't work. He said, I guess your problem isn't alcohol. You must have what I got. Nobody else today has got. I said, what could that be, Bob? He said, it sounds like alcohol fools a lot of people. It's called alcoholism. I said, oh, Jesus, Bob. Don't play word games with me. I look terrible, but I'm smarter than hell. Shut up, he said. And he gave me about a three-hour harangue, most of which I was able to blot out before I went insane. Somewhere in that harangue, something triggered in my spirit that I began the foundation of changing my life. And I think it boiled down to this, he said. I told you what alcoholics do. People with problems with alcohol, they stop drinking, they're all right. However, this strange thing called alcoholism, this mind-consuming, body-destroying, eventually fatal thing called alcoholism, which un unfortunately for us looks almost exactly the naked eye, like an alcohol problem. But if you stop drinking and clean up your act with alcoholism, you know what happens? There's no extensive, no long-term effect except it makes you so painful you can't stand it. I said, Jesus, Bob, I never heard anybody say that. They say, getting sober is the answer. And he said, nah, getting sober just makes it more painful. Getting, I said, but all you got sober. He said, yes, because we use it as a doorway to something. It's not the end result. I thought, oh, that's kind of silly, Bob. Now, why do all these alcoholics drink alcohol? You know, they all, they all get up and talk, we've been hearing that for weeks. Oh, I drink and drink and drink and drink. If it's doing such bad things for them, why would they drink? He said, kid, you don't seem to know much for a guy who says he's been around eight, ten years. Alcoholics don't drink alcohol because it's doing bad things for him. He said, I'll tell you what, kid, you need a cup of coffee. If this were Johnny Walker and I took a big drink, mm, it would almost instantly alter my perception of reality. The world would be a little softer, a little friendlier. have a couple of big drinks more, and I, I'm really getting along with people pretty well. Hi there. Now the only problem is to stop in time before you think you're a fighter. <laughs> I've done that a lot. He said, the thing that makes an alcoholic an alcoholic is not, you know, aren't you familiar with the symptom? I said, sure, Bob, that's why I drink, but I mean, but I drink because I feel so bad that I'm sober. He said, that's right. An alcoholic is a person who has alcohol does something special for. I said, you mean to tell me it doesn't do it for all people who drink? So less than 10% of people who drink alcohol will ever take, get a feeling of what you and I do every time we drink. Mm. I said, Jesus, Bob, I didn't know that. He said, you know, you told me the other day you tried to commit suicide in Texas. He said, every day tries to commit suicide. That'll be good. The, uh, you ever see him come into a bar? I'm going to commit suicide. Give me a couple of drinks, going away drinks, if you will. <laughs> I did the best I could. I tried to do so well. <laughs> and ten minutes later, you're down the bar saying, 
You with anyone, Granny? <laughs> Changes things. I said, Jesus, Bob, that's wonderful. I understand that. But then why do these people who are alcoholic, once they get sober, why do they drink again? There was a girl at the meeting in our group last week said she'd been sober while she drank again. She said, that's the other part of the problem, kid. He said, you don't seem to know much at all. And he had a theory that I thought was stupid. But I heard it taken 25 years later. I thought, my God, that's right on. He says, when you grow up, it's not easy growing up in the world. It's hard to grow up. You've got to take a lot of crap. You've got to be pushed around a lot. You're supposed to know things you don't know. You're supposed to have resolved conflicts you don't know how to deal with. And it's really difficult. Some people, and we never know even what the goal is. The goal is to reach an emotional maturity. Some people reach it at 50. Some people reach it at 16. But somewhere in there, we're trying to reach them. He said, but emotional maturity is almost never reached by alcoholics. I said, why not, Bob? He said, because along the way, when we have a difficult lesson to learn or a difficult pain we have to deal with, we have discovered we can drink him away. Here's to you, household finance. <laughs> Here's to you, bitch. I never liked you anyway. <laughs> Hey, Mr. Carlson, take your job and shove it up your nose. And that works. I've done it again and again, all of those things. He says, but every time you do that, it creates a little invisible cold ball in your psyche somewhere. And you get a lot of that for a while. And they never even bother you until you decide to quit drinking. And when you quit drinking, that charges them up. Then it's just a matter of time before something brings them to a boil. It could be something at home, something in the street, something at a job. For me, it was always the jobs. I look back to it. Something that uh, was said so well by Tim today. People didn't give me enough respect. And I had a top job, and I was a great writer. And you treat me, I'm not one of your little friends, treat me with a little respect. And you, you get, somebody gives you a crash of shit, and you, how dare you talk to me that way? And then you like to go back and get revenge, but you can't because that would make you look immature. So you think about it. And you wait a couple of days, and pretty soon you notice his little friends are looking at you funny, too. Uh, and I find myself at night lying awake thinking about these boobs and how I could get them. And I get to a point where scientists say people like me get to a point where you literally must drink to preserve your sanity. And I... Uh, so I'd eventually drink, and I'd get drunk and lose my job. Gee, Clancy, you had such a great job. You had all that money. What happened? Ah, there are a bunch of phonies. I quit. I'll get another job, a better job. And I would. I said, Jesus, Bob, what you just explained is the story of my life for the last 10 years. I really had some big deals going. I was something. And now I'm living in an abandoned car, taking crap from people I wouldn't hire to mow my lawn last year. He said, there's a name for people like you, kid. And he was rather profane, so I was kind of afraid. What the, could that be, Bob? He said, you're an alcoholic. I said, an alcoholic? But my problem really isn't alcohol, Bob. He said, I agree with you. He said, an alcoholic is not a person whose problem is alcohol, necessarily. 
It's the person whose answer is alcohol. And if it's your answer, you're gone. And I remember him telling me that in about three weeks into December of 1958, and I was six weeks sober. And I, I, I found it hard to believe, but I, in a sense I could believe it. What if that's true? What if I'm not really crazy? What if there's a meaning for all these patterns, these patterns of blowing up and so on? And what it did for me that week, I guess, it took away my fear of being insane, whether rightfully or wrongfully. And I thought, maybe I'm an alcoholic. I said to Bob, Bob, why, did, why doesn't A explain it the way you do instead of this phony allergy of the body, obsession of the mind crap? He says, they do, kid. Look at the wall. Number one, you have to... You have to agree you have a problem with alcohol. Then there's a dash, which in the English language means end of thought, beginning of new thought. You must also agree that you have a problem without alcohol. And if either one of those present were not present, you would not be here. And you think about that if you're new tonight, some of the new folks back there a day or two, you may not think you belong here. But if you didn't, if you could drink, you'd be out drinking. If you can stay sober comfortably without drinking, you'd be home staying sober comfortably. When you can't do either one, you're driven into rooms like this, not like this, little small church basements as a rule. And you sit there and watch your head say, what are you doing here with these idiots? You don't belong here. And you got to sit through that till you do belong here. I thought that's just remarkable. And uh, very quickly, to me... I was kept out of AA by the first three steps. I was kept a lot of people out. I've worked with a lot of people to keep out. I can't be an alcoholic, but it turned out I was an alcoholic, because an alcoholic is not what I thought it was. But then, I'll go through this quickly. I don't want to take too long. He said, time to work the steps, Bill. I said, I can't work the steps. I cannot return to God. Uh, I can't. And the reason was when my little boy died in that spring that my god I suddenly realized why my little boy died that damn Norwegian Lutheran God had killed my little boy who never committed a sin in his life to punish me because I was a bad guy well screw you God you're going to get me when I go to hell but you're going to wait till then there's going to be nothing for me to lend and I said Bob I can't return to God he said nothing in the says you got to return to God oh to a power greater than myself Bob does that fool the other kids? So it doesn't say that either. Read what it says. You come to believe in something. You are never asked to return to any old sick ideas, any sick old thoughts. You come to come to believe in something. Can't you come to believe in a loving God? I said, no. He says, do you believe in AA? I said, I like it a little better than I used to, but not much. He says, do you think I'm doing better than you are? Said, of course, sir, Bob. He said, congratulations, I'm your new higher power. <laughs> and I could accept that because he was trying, knew he was trying to help me. But he explained to me what I had to do now was accept this. Accept there was a power in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't even have to know what it is. Just have to accept there's a power there. He said, get all these people didn't stay sober so they can come around and fool you. There's a power here that's doing something. But the important thing for people like me who fancy themselves intelligent going to restore me to sanity. What the hell is sanity? You can read ten books on mental health and get ten different definitions of sanity. Oddly enough, insanity is easy to define. 
when the human brain is under sufficient and intense conflict and can find no resolution, it sometimes, in order to maintain its neural integrity, it will alter its perception of reality. That is called psychosis. And if you become psychotic, you're going to stay psychotic. You don't become psychotic, unpsychotic, psychotic. Usually you stay that way. And uh, something triggers it. For some, if you're completely psychotic, it's easy to spot and they put you away. But for most people, it has to be triggered by something from outside. You read the paper on a guy. I lived destroyed this guy for 10 years. He came home one way, took a rifle, killed his kids, killed his wife, killed himself. Why would he do that? Something triggered his psychosis. And uh, psychosis is a very difficult thing. But it was explained to me by my betters. Alcoholics almost never become psychotic. Isn't that odd? You'd think we'd be the number one candidates. We are for neurotic pain, self-pity, sadness, but not for the psychosis. Do you know why that is? Because when it gets bad enough, long enough, alcoholics drink alcohol. And alcohol has the power to alter my perception of reality. You and I have the gift of being able to induce temporary psychosis. Happy days. <laughs> now tomorrow you're back to reality. Maybe the day after. But for a while you had some relief. I said, Jesus, Bob, I didn't really do that. I thought that meant something entirely different. But what do you think about it? Maybe he pointed out something to me that I never thought about. The steps mean exactly what they say. I never could understand week-long interpretations of these seminars of what the steps really mean. They mean what they say. I have to come to believe there's some power here that will make it unnecessary for me to induce a change of perception, to stay sober. And the last one, of course, turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand them. That's ridiculous. Try that when you can't have no place to stay. You know what you do? You'll sleep on the street. That's what happens. God may like some people, but he doesn't like people like me. And so Bob became my sponsor. And I uh, became my higher power. And one day he said, I want you to write an inventory. I said, Bob, I can't do that. I don't feel like that. I've got enough regrets in my life without going over them again. And uh, I felt worse and worse. And finally one day I realized, if I'm supposed to do what my higher power says, he's my higher power, I ought to do that. And I wrote an inventory. I, I felt very bad that day, and I put down a lot of terrible things that I tried to never rethink about. Never tell my psychiatrist those things. People say, why don't you tell your psychiatrist those things? Because if you're paying that kind of money, you can't risk rejection. That's why you don't tell your psychiatrist. <laughs> Get out of my office. What's wrong with you? But wash off that chair first, will you? <laughs> and little by little, he took me through the steps. And my life began to change. I didn't have any great spiritual experience I have it to this day what happened to me it seemed to me was that everybody else gradually shaped up and that's still why I go to meetings I don't need them but you all do <laughs> if I don't go to meetings you all go to hell but I uh, he said I gotta get a job I got a little job I got fired as a dishwasher I got fired as a busboy then in my first year, I was almost going to commit suicide, halfway through my first year. And uh, February 10th, I just happened to think about it, I read it again the other day. I was sitting in the club thinking, how can I commit suicide? 
Okay, read this. He gave me 24 hours a day book. That's, a, that's what I need, some more spiritual counseling for Christ's sake. And I opened it to February 10th and I said, like a tree, I must be pruned of a lot of dead branches before I can be healthy. And I seem to be blown and dead and dark. But through the sap, a couple of spring comes new branches, new flowers. I thought, maybe I've changed my life that day a little bit. And I uh, finally held a job in my second year for seven months before I got fired. After my second birthday, some people, friends, took care of but put a little clout for me. Got me a job as a beginning writer in a big medical corporation. My sponsor took me out to a thrift shop and got me some clothes that didn't fit very well, but they were nice. And I still had no front teeth, so I had to learn to carry my lip like this. I went to work there and called me and said, Clancy, you probably, we don't expect you to do this, but we got a problem here with this medical procedure. We can't seem to find the right note for it. Do you want to give it a try? I said, sure. And I looked at it. Something I'd written a whole treatise on years before. And I wrote something they just were, Clancy, how did you ever do that? That's wonderful. You've got to do the nub of it. I thought, boy, I'm on my way now. And then one day a guy said, I heard a guy say, that guy doesn't have any front teeth. Uh-oh, here we go again. They're going to start this crap again. I might as well just pop this guy and uh, quit. But then if I do that, I'll have to explain it to that damn Bob. <laughs> so I called Bob. I said, Bob, they're screwing me around. I said, what do you do? He said, I said, he said, I didn't have any front teeth. He said, do you have any front teeth? No, I don't. <laughs> but that's not the point. He's ridiculing me. He said, why do you say it? I know why he said it. He's ridiculing me. He said, why did he say it? <laughs> so I got this guy. I said, I understand you think it's kind of funny. I don't have any front teeth. He said, oh, no. I was telling someone just the opposite. You, your clothes don't fit you very well, so it's secondhand clothes. And you got no front teeth. And you wrote that great thing. You must have had something bad happen back there in the past somewhere. And you're making a comeback. He said, my hat's off to you. And I said, oh. <laughs> and I went through about five or six of those. Thomas Fiber, so was director of advertising of that big medical corporation. Had front teeth, smiled a lot. And if you knew people that have lost teeth, let me give you hope. Once you become spiritually pure, they grow back. <laughs> when I was seven years sober, another guy and I were brought into Hollywood. We created something called Boss Radio. Became the number one hard rock station in the world. We brought the Beatles out to California. We wouldn't mount a monkey with the Rolling Stones. And I was 10 years sober. I was downtown doing public relations for an oil company. 15 years sober. I was a marketing director in Beverly Hills. When I was five years sober, the same wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my wallet all the way to Dallas, leaped out of their post office box, rushed to my side, attached themselves to me like a group of starving chiggers. Nine months and ten seconds later, another Catholic hit the street. <laughs> a little boy, thank God. And now they're all grown up. Had a great experience last summer. I, my three daughters had all turned 21 last summer in AA. And we all went to the International Convention together and had fun. And it was like herding cats, but it sure was fun. <laughs> and they're all doing fine. Only one of my daughters has turned out bad. You hate to talk about that because it's such a downer, but my oldest daughter has become a judge. 
she came up for, for Christmas fusion and said, Daddy, remember when you, we were little girls you used to scream at us and send us to our room? I said, sure, honey, but you know why that was. She said, of course I do. But when you come to Albuquerque, I'm going to send you to a little room. <laughs> I'm not going to Albuquerque. <laughs> I'll tell you what I learned, though, all these years. I learned that the purpose of aid, if you're new, I want to tell you my opinion. I secretly feel it's Bill Wilson's opinion, but I have to say it's my opinion. <laughs> I had a chance to talk to Bill Wilson for an hour once, and I should have asked him about it. But Alcoholics Anonymous, it seems to me, is steps, it's gradual change of perception, is to little by little do to do very slowly what alcohol did fast. To change my perception of life little by little, to make it softer, to get along with people, to have self-confidence so you're not destroyed by a passing glance or a remark. And it comes little by little. <laughs> don't even notice it happening. It can happen for your first 30 days for about a half a second. You know, <laughs> what was that feeling? I felt good there for a minute. <laughs> but I noticed it when I was sober a while. And I said to this old guy, Chuck Chamberlain, I said, Bill, Chuck, you know, Bob is my higher power. He said, why is that? I said, God hates me. He said, kid, I got some news for you. You're not important enough for God to hate. That's good news and bad news. And I remember that night I went home and tried a prayer. Over a series of times I have prayed earnestly. Now I pray earnestly to God. Every day of my life I thank him for my sobriety. And I pray for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out and not dicker. All my life, when I had believed in God before, I dickered with him. Do this, I'll do that. It's the best thing in that 12 steps for people like me, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out. And it's a, been a great life. And I've had a, a good feeling. Except sometimes you get feeling good and it takes you off. By surprise. When I was 15 years sober, I was doing very well. I'd make a lot of money. My kids were doing well. My new son was just about to become captain of his high school football team. Just, and in some hideous fit of misperception, I resigned my job in Beverly Hills. And for the last 37 years, I've been the managing director of the Midnight Mission on Skid Row, the place that threw me out in 1958. And people say, why would you give up your great career in advertising to run that damn mission with all those bums? And there's no good answer for that. Well, it was such a significant decrease in salary, I couldn't pass it up. <laughs> Monday morning, I'll do something I'm sure none of you will do. I'll get up in my big, big house out of the ocean. Today, there's 150 AAs in my backyard playing ball, as I do every Saturday. I'd like to be there myself and uh, drive through Beverly Hills and get downtown and park my car underneath the mission and go up and walk through the, uh, take my walk around the building, see who died over the weekend, who got stabbed, who's got arrested, who's dying, who's just hideous. And come in and spend the day with my staff trying to find ways to get these poor bastards to acknowledge they might be willing to take some kind of a problem, do something about their problem. You don't get many people back from Skid Row. It's uh, not like a Drunk farm. It's a bad place. But we get a few. Then I'll go home Monday night and I'll have dinner with my wife and my grandson who's living with us. And I'll go to a meeting and I'll uh, sit in the middle and try to pretend to be 
interested in what these people say. It'll probably turn out all right. But the interesting thing about it is I, I don't have what I would consider an exciting life. I've had an exciting life, but it isn't very exciting now. But I live, in, I, live I sleep well, and I do well. I, I, it's so impossible to think all those years. I look back and think, why could I not see this year after year after year? It turned, as the old Chamberlain used to say, you can't see till you can see, and you can't hear till you can hear. And when you do, then you better say, but before I sit down, I say one thing. I want to say one more thing. I don't talk a little too long. I ran across something recently. A friend of mine wrote it in Australia. And uh, I never read things from the podium. I wouldn't read out of the book. I wouldn't read nothing. But I'm going to make an exception this once. It's just something called We Drunks. Just listen to it. We died of pneumonia in furnished rooms where they found us three days later when somebody complained about the smell. We died against bridge abutments and nobody knew if it was suicide. We probably didn't know either except in the sense it was always suicide. We died in hospitals, our stomachs huge, distended, there was nothing they could do. We died in cells, never knowing whether we were guilty or not. We went to priests, they gave us pledges, they told us to pray, they told us to go and sin no more, but go. We tried and we died. We died of overdoses, we died in bed, we died in straitjackets in the DTs, seeing God knows what creeping, skittering, slithering, shuffling things. And you know what the worst thing was? The worst thing was that nobody ever believed how hard we tried. We went to doctors and they gave us stuff to take that would make us sick when we drank on the principle of so crazy it just might work. Or maybe they just shook their heads and sent us to places like Drop King Flynn's Hospital. And when we got out, we were hooked on peraldehyde. Or maybe we had lied to the doctors. They told us not to drink so much. Just drink. Drink like me. And we tried and we died. We drowned in our own vomit or choked on it. Our broken jaws wired shut. We died playing Russian roulette. And people thought we'd lost. But we knew better. We died under the hoofs of horses, under the wheels of vehicles, under the knives and boot heels of our brother drunks. We died in shame. And you know what was even worse? Was that we couldn't believe it ourselves that we had tried. We figured we could just thought we had tried, and we died believing we hadn't really tried, believing we didn't know what it meant to try. We figured we just thought we tried, and we died believing that we hadn't tried, believing we didn't know what it meant to try. When we were desperate enough or hopeful or deluded or embattled enough to go for help, we went to people with letters after their names and prayed that they might have the right Read, read the right books, that they had the right words in them, never suspecting the terrifying truth that the right words, simple as they were, had not been written yet. We died falling off girders on high buildings because iron workers get drunk. We died with a shotgun in our mouth or jumping off a bridge. Then everybody knew it was suicide. We died under the harbor expressway with our hands tied behind us and a bullet in the back of the head because this time the people that we disappointed were the wrong people. We died in convulsions, or of insult to the brain, they called it. We died in continence and in disgrace and abandoned. We died in convulsions. If we were women, we died degraded, because women have so much more to live up to. We tried and we died and nobody cried. 
And the very worst thing was that for every one of us that died, there was another hundred of us or a thousand who wished that we could die, who went to sleep praying we would not have to wake up because what we were enduring was intolerable and we knew in our hearts it wasn't ever going to change. One day in a hospital room in New York City, one of us had what the book's called a transforming spiritual experience. And he said to himself, I've got it. No, he didn't. He only had part of it. And he kept trying, and he, I have to share it. And then he almost had it. And he kept trying to give away, but we couldn't hear it. We tried and we died. We dried of one, died of one last cigarette, the comfort of it glowing in the dark. We passed out in the bed caught fire. They said we suffocated before our body burned. They said we never felt a thing. That was the best way maybe we had died. Except sometimes we took our family with us. One after another, and the man in New York was so sure he had it, he tried to pray us into sobriety. But that didn't work either, because prayer confuses drunks. And he, he tried and we died. One after another, we got his hopes up and we broke his heart because that's what we do. And the worst thing was that every time we thought we knew what the worst thing was, something happened that was worse. Until a day came in a hotel lobby, and it wasn't in Rome or Jerusalem or Mecca or even Dublin or South Boston. It was Akron, Ohio, for Christ's sake. A day came when the man, a day came when the man said, I have to find a drunk because I need him as bad as he needs me. Now he had it. And the transmission line was open after all those years. The transmission line was open. And now we don't go to priests. We don't go to doctors and people with letters after their names. We go to uh, people who have been there. We come to each other. And we try. And we don't have to die. Thank you. Thank you.